Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 1, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 2007 horror anthology film, Trick or Treat. (laughs) It was written and directed by Michael Doherty and stars Anna Paquin, Dylan Baker, Brian Cox, Sam Todd, and Quinn Lord. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Specific trigger warnings can be found in the show notes for this episode. Okay, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, first of all, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so (laughs) excited to be back. Oh my God, I feel like it's been like one million years. Oh my goodness, I know. It really hasn't been that long, but it does feel... Like it has, <laughs> for it's, sure. Oh my God, it's true. Ugh. Oh my goodness. Well, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Yes. In a small, sleepy town in Ohio, just how much trouble can you get into on Halloween night? We're glad you asked. You can find urban legends, serial killers, werewolves, and the spirit of Halloween itself named Sam wandering about through the night, wreaking havoc on those that mock the traditions of this creepy holiday. Trick or Treat takes us on a journey where these characters' stories overlap and secrets about the townsfolk are revealed, like the school bus massacre of eight of the town's children in years prior. It's a wild ride with lots of twists and turns, resurrected ghosts, and more tricks than treats. Oh, (laughs) thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. Oh, you're welcome. That was really (laughs) great and very creative. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so writer-director Michael Doherty uh, took over the Legendary Films Twitter account and tweeted some really fun facts about the film, which I will share with you now. Uh, So other than a few stunts where a double was required, Quinn Lord, who played Sam and Quinn Lord, played Sam in every scene. Kids move differently than adults, with a subtle, clumsy puppy cuteness, which is why I wanted an actual kid to play Sam instead of a little person. Oh, that's really cute, actually. (laughs) But, you know, watching it, I'm like, yeah, like, you can definitely tell there is an actual child in that costume. (laughs) Yes, I love it. Oh, my God. The way he, like, takes my favorite part with Sam is the way he takes the candy out of the bowl, the principal's bowl. He's like, keep. He, like, yanks it. Like, get rid of it. Oh, my God. That's so freaking cute. (laughs) So good. 
Okay, so Quinn Lord also played the Peeping Tommy character in the Halloween store. So the little boy who uh, peeps on the werewolf women. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, that's him. (laughs) Okay, so the original trick-or-treat producer was FX wizard Stan Winston. He was the first person to try to get it made, but wanted to do it more like a typical anthology with four different directors himself, Toby Hooper, George Romero, and John Carpenter. Shockingly, they all said yes. Unfortunately, no one in Hollywood wanted to make Trick or Treat at the time, with some studios even claiming that no one wanted to see horror movies with vampires, werewolves, or zombies anymore because they are too old-fashioned. And then, yeah, and then Michael Doherty... He, this is in his t- this tweet, he wrote this, and then he he put the eye roll emoji after that. <laughs> <laughs> Big mood, yeah. Like, Old fashioned. I was like, okay, but that's what horror is made of. I know. Okay, so Rob Hunter wrote an article entitled 31 Things We Learned from the Michael Doherty Commentary for Trick or Treat. Uh, and we learned one, some of the shots showing kids running across the street were actually accomplished by using little people as the filming was too late at night for actual children to be present. That was kind of interesting. Huh. Two, the opening credits include artwork from various members of the team. So like the people who worked on the movie. Oh, that's and so cool. Doherty said, yeah, and Doherty said, basically anybody who could draw contributed to the opening title sequence. So they didn't actually, from what I understand, they didn't actually hire, like, comic book artists. They just had people who worked on the movie do that opening scene. Oh, so neat. Yeah, so I thought that was really neat. Okay, so there are also uh, childhood photos from various cast and crew members, too, in that opening sequence. Okay, so three, editing the film is des- was described as a brutal process and hell. The only <laughs> sequence that plays straight through is Krieg's demise at the end. And Doherty said, I wish we did do a super special edition which allowed you to watch the stories by themselves. That would actually be kind of neat. Yeah. Okay, so the gunball rolling down the stairs is a nod to the movie The Changeling from 1980, which was another film shot in Vancouver. And it turned out that the cameraman working the sequence also filmed that ball scene in The Changeling. (gasps) Oh, so cool. Yeah, so it was one of his first gigs in the business. Okay, so another thing that you learned from the commentary is... uh, Yes, of course, you gotta be fucking kidding me, is a nod (laughs) to John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. Yes. Also, I don't think I put this in here, but um, Brian Cox, who plays Krieg, or the bus driver guy, he, the reason why he has like that long stringy hair and weird facial uh stuff going on in his head on his face facial uh, hair um he wanted to look like john carpenter oh my god and now i can't unsee it (laughs) yes so yeah he wanted to have like stringy gray hair and like stringy kind of facial hair so that he looked like john carpenter 
Oh my God, I love it. I know. Okay, so according to Michael Henley, quote, the film was the feature directorial debut of Michael Doherty, a screenwriter for X-Men 2, which I had no idea. That's the best (laughs) X-Men. And Superman Returns. uh, And he was given control of Trick or Treat as a thank you from director Brian Singer, who ended up producing the film. Sadly, uh, and this is sadly for Doherty's case, uh, because Singer is a piece of shit, uh, Singer star fell in between production and distribution. And so anything with his name on it was sidelined and Trick or Treat was pushed back from its October 2007 release, fell into limbo, and finally it was squeaked out on DVD by Warner Brothers in 2009. That sucks so hard because this movie is so good. It's the best anthology film in my opinion yes hands down so Ugh. good so clever and i can see why it was uh, it was literally hell to edit because there's so many scenes here that there's so many things here that they didn't have to add like there's one part where you see at the beginning and i'm i think i mentioned this later on in the episode but i'm gonna mention it here um you see the uh, neuro- neurodivergent children from the bus accident. Mm-hmm. They show up at the beginning of the film. They're walking down the street and they're covered in blood because they just killed the bus driver. <gasps> oh my God. And it's yes. sort of like a blink and you miss moment. Another blink and you miss moment is you see Schrader running behind somebody at some point and he has the 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 cart filled with pumpkins it's super quick i was like they never why they they don't need to add that oh my god but they did and it's like you so you kind of see where the story is happening within the other stories by seeing just these tiny little peaks of these other characters doing things and i mean like you see at the beginning of the film so you see everyone, like, walking in the beginning, like, going to, like, their different things. Like, the, you see the principal has, like, his bag full of whatever. And then you see, like, the werewolf women are getting out of, like, a car and going to the store. And you see all everyone um, kind of moving into position, basically. Yeah. And I think at the beginning, you're like, oh, that's cool. Like, you're supposed to notice them then. But mm-hmm. then the rest of the film, you don't really notice everybody kind of behind somebody like like schrader with the cart going behind them or the children in the beginning walking away from the bus driver guy's house this it's very much a blink and you miss moment and the fact that they still added that in there is so impressive yes you know what though yeah go ahead like now that you are saying all of this stuff it makes so much more sense to me because i remember being in high school and all of the um like theater kids that i was friends with loved this movie Mm. and i was like oh you know it's like it's cool whatever but i get it now because it's almost like watching like a stage production oh my gosh absolutely everything is like like on the mark and it's almost like instead of using extras like everybody who is a part of the cast is an extra so it's like so layery and it's so good and it's so like on the beat and on point and now i get it i'm like this is every theater nerd's dream 
of yes. a horror movie. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so true though because it's it is like in a the- in theater you would probably notice these characters. But in a film, like I said, like I did not notice and I mean I watched this film 3 times before we recorded this episode just so I could see if I could find these little moments and and I had to I had to look for them. You yes. have to like really look for them. Otherwise, you, yeah, you miss them. And so I just, I love the dedication yes. <laughs> to the anthology and to the linking of the stories. The, yes. the dedication is what makes this movie, I think, the best horror anthology film ever. Absolutely. So, th- yes, I'm glad we talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> So thank good. you all for listening. <laughs> okay, so to end the production aspect of this, uh, Henley also says about the film, Trick or Treat is in no particular Trick or Treat is in no particular order a horror movie, an anthology, a celebration of style, and the work of a first-time feature director. Any one of those things would not necessarily make a good movie. In fact, they frequently don't. When those forces are drawn together, you'd think the chances of quality would be very slim indeed. But Trick or Treat is that rare delight, a stylish horror anthology from a first-timer that brims with inventiveness, wit, imagination, and wicked fun, unquote. <gasps> yes! Oh, I love it. What a good yeah. quote! Yes. Okay, so let's talk about the Bechtel test. Uh, does it pass? Kind of. Macy and Sarah say a few words to each other uh, that's something other about something other than a boy. But that's it. And so I guess it does pass, but it is a bit underwhelming. Yeah. Okay, so Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? You know, not quite. But it's really, really close. And from what I gathered watching it, most of the dialogue in this film is spoken by women or girls. Wow. Yes. So even though there's a there's more men by like two cast members, there's like a little bit more men. Mm-hmm. So it's not really that much, but more women speak in this film than men do. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. Did a woman write, direct, producer, edit the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? One of the werewolves mentions how she had sex with another woman dressed as a sailor, but it was really just an innuendo for eating her. So, no. No. <laughs> There's no representation. Um, yeah. I guess it. there some... Like, most horror movies can be coded as queer, um, but I don't really know of any moments that really could be coded as queer in this. Well, there is that one scene where um, Anna Paquin's character is, she's, like, standing there alone, and she sees a girl dressed as a Viking, I think. Yes. And she, like, she kind of, like, oh, like, gazes at her for a second. But I can't tell if that's because she's like, oh, wow, she's super tasty smelling (laughs) because I'm a werewolf or like if she thinks she's attractive. It's kind of like uh, the line is kind of blurred there. Well, and it's a little bit 
I am gonna, I am gonna push to say it's a tad bit homophobic because when she finds out it is a woman, she's like embarrassed by it. Ah, mm-hmm. Yep, so I would say true. it's not maybe a great yeah. representation of that. <laughs> Dang it. Uh. Yeah. So listeners, let us know what you think about uh, the LGBT plus or lack of representation in yeah. this film. Okay. So let's. Okay. So this movie is all about Halloween. It's all about it. Um. So. Let's talk about uh, the brief history of Halloween and its traditions. I want to start off this section by reading from the introduction of an amazing book called Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween by Lisa Morton. Okay, so the introduction goes, Halloween is surely unique among festivals and holidays. While other popular calendar celebrations, including Christmas and Easter, have mixed pagan and Christian traditions, only Halloween has essentially split itself down the middle, offering up a secular or pagan festival on the night of the 31st of October and somber religious observance on the day of November 1st. As with Valentine's Day, many of those who celebrate Halloween are unaware of its Catholic history or meaning. But while Valentine's Day has remained recognizably the same for at least a century, Halloween has transformed over and over again. What began as a pagan New Year's celebration and a Christian commemoration of the dead has over time served as a harvest festival, a romantic night of mystery for young adults, an autumnal party for adults, a costumed begging ritual for children, a season for exploring fears in a controlled environment, and most recently, a heavily commercialized product exported by the United States to the rest of the world. Halloween also has the unenviable distinction of being the most demonized of days. Christian groups decry it as the devil's birthday. <laughs> wow. Happy birthday, devil. <laughs> uh, authorities fear its effect on public safety and nationalist leaders around the world denounce its importance importation for conflicting with their own native traditions. Some of these concerns may be valid, but they are all rooted in a history that compounds confusion and error with occasional fact. Perhaps because Halloween has always been connected with the macabre, those who have chronicled it in the past have frequently been less interested in accuracy than in dramatic and ghoulish ramblings. Wow. <laughs> the introduction continues, and Morton says, Despite a history of extending back well over a millennium, it's only been within the last three decades that historians, folklorists, and writers have begun to take the study of Halloween seriously. Even in that brief period of time, the day's identity has shifted making it difficult to produce a comprehensive and up-to-date overview. 
Within the last year alone, Halloween has expanded into parts of the world where it was previously unknown. And in its main home, America, industries spawned by Halloween are starting to move beyond mere October celebrations. Halloween is truly becoming more than just a mostly American mark on the calendar. It's on the verge of blossoming into a global subculture. So that is from Lisa Morton's book, uh, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. Check it out. It's amazing. It's such a good book. I'm not quite done with it yet. I'm about halfway through, but I'm learning so much. (laughs) My God, that's so cool. Also, I love how (laughs) she calls Halloween for children a begging ritual. (laughs) A costumed begging ritual for children. Like, um... That sounds like my everyday life, though, so thank you. <laughs> a begging ritual. <laughs> Not just that, a costumed begging ritual. <laughs> Please, sir, may I have more money? <laughs> While you're dressed up as a witch. <laughs> Can I have health insurance, please? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Abby, would you please give us a brief history of the holiday? Yes. According to History.com, Halloween evolved from the ancient Celtic holiday of Samhain. Over the centuries, Halloween... Oh, by the way, I just have to say, um, I love that the main character's name is Sam because of how Samhain is spelled. Yes. I think that's like the link between... Oh. I just love it. Uh, it is. Yes, that's why his name is Sam. Oh, uh, so cute. Anyway. <laughs> and it's not Sam Hain, as as Donald Pleasant says in, in Halloween 2. Oh, my Sam God. Hain. Sam Hain. Yes. Oh, my I'm God. Like, Donald Pleasance, you should know better. <laughs> Get it together. Okay. <laughs> Over the centuries, Halloween transitioned from a pagan ritual to a day of parties, costumes, jack-o'-lanterns, and trick-or-treating for kids and adults. Ancient Celts marked Samhain as the most significant of the four quarterly fire festivals taking place at the midpoint between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. During this time of year, hearth fires and family homes were left to burn out while the harvest was gathered. After the harvest work was complete, celebrants joined with druid priests to light a community fire using a wheel that would cause friction and spark flames. The wheel was considered a representation of the sun and used along with prayers. Cattle were sacrificed and participants took a flame from the communal bonfire back to their home to relight the hearth. Early texts present Samhain as a mandatory celebration lasting three days and three nights where the community was required to show themselves to local kings or chieftains. Failure to participate was believed to result in punishment from the gods, usually illness or death. Yeah, and this holiday, almost from the very get-go, was misrepresented by those who studied it. Um, There's one guy, and his name escapes me, but he wrote a ton about Samhain and the Celts in the 1700s, I believe. And it was all just basically made up or just completely wrong. Um, (laughs) Because the Celts didn't write anything down. The majority of their history is oral. So, like... There was this rumor that Samhain was the name of a god that the Celts worshipped, like the god of the dead, and that is false. Uh, Samhain more likely means end of summer or something to that nature. Um, They're still not quite sure 
what Samhain actually means. But hmm. if you look at like the like the Celtic language, like they're looking at like that might be the na- like what it means. Um, but anyway, Halloween has always been misunderstood, and it is a huge tragedy. Wait, did we talk about this guy in our Wicker Man episode? Like these men and the things that they make up. <laughs> no, it wasn't James Fraser, but that shouldn't make anyone feel any better because that just means there are more old dead guys out there just screwing things up from beyond the grave still. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, if you all want to read more about how Halloween is so misunderstood to this day, uh, read Lisa Morton's book. You can get it. I mean, I got mine at a bookstore. You can get it on Amazon, like wherever you want to buy stuff. So um, it's so good. There's so much. Okay. So the history and traditions of Halloween um, all kind of connect uh, as to why Doherty created the character of Sam. Like like you mentioned, Abby, like the name comes from Salwen, which is spelled Samhain. Um <laughs> And the writer-director says, I was always bummed that Halloween didn't have a singular mascot character like Christmas had Santa or Easter had the Easter Bunny, which is partially where the idea for Sam came from. Halloween has always had a lot of icons surrounding it, witches, vampires, ghosts, and black cats, but it always felt like it needed something that truly captured its strange spirit, that odd, childlike mix of fear and wonder. I always felt bad for Linus, waiting in the pumpkin patch all night for the enigmatic great pumpkin to rise, always knowing he'd be disappointed in the end. But what if Linus was right and the great pumpkin or his equivalent was real? What if there really was a spirit of Halloween rising from a pumpkin patch every year for centuries, wandering the streets dressed like a little kid in orange footy pajamas, (laughs) making sure we respect the rules of the holiday, that we respect the dead? Because that's what Halloween is really about, honoring those that have passed on, because this is the one night when they might come back to pay us a visit. Unquote. Ooh. I know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we get into um some other things, I want to kind of acknowledge the brief history of horror anthologies because I feel like this is the best one out there. I think it's important to kind of maybe look at, you know, where the subgenre came from. So uh, let's get into the history of the subgenre. According to Sarah Sentry, Quote, the question of the first horror anthology is unanswerable, as the format has dated back at least as far as Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales in the late 14th century. It can be assumed the act of gathering and exchanging horror stories dates back even further. Although its past and its future may be yet to be predetermined, there are still some conclusions to draw over the genre's existence in specific mediums during the 20th century, a time when horror history was well recorded, unquote. And according to uh, the article, The History of Anthological Horror, Largely regarded as the first published horror anthology, Twice Told Tales, is a collection of mostly previously published stories from The Token, an annual illustrated gift book published in Boston. Uh, The author of Twice Told Tales is Nathaniel Hawthorne, 
who uh, was from Massachusetts in Salem, and his great-great-grandfather was John Hawthorne, who was a Puritan, uh, who was one of the judges that presided uh, at the Salem Witch Trials in the 1600s. Uh, we do talk a lot more about Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, in our Lords of Salem episode. So please check that out if you'd like to learn more about Nathaniel Hawthorne. But apparently his collection of stories, Twice Told Tales, is considered by some to be the first published horror anthology. That's so cool. Yes. And in 1842, Edgar Allan Poe, which we also have an episode about Edgar Allan Poe. Check that out. Um, he reviewed Twice Told Tales for Graham's magazine, concluding that Hawthorne was a man of indisputable genius. And by this time, Poe, also from the state of Massachusetts, had already written his own collection of short stories for publication. And these were uh, The Tales of Grotesque and Arabesque, was published in two volumes in 1839. The horror anthology had become a recognized format, and after also writing many short stories for newspapers and magazines, Algernon Blackwood's first publication of The Empty House and Other Ghost Stories was released in 1906. Blackwood went on to write such classics as The Willows and The Wendigo, which was first published in another anthology, The Lost Valley and Other Stories, in 1910. Fast forward 74 years to 1984, and the first publication of The Books of Blood uh, came out. And that was, each book was a collection of, of horror stories written by British author Clive Barker, which we have a Clive Barker episode too, so please check that out. <laughs> We're almost at 100 episodes, so we got a lot. We got a lot of like... stuff that we've covered. Um, the first of which catapulted Barker to legendary status of horror, and Stephen King proclaimed Clive Barker as the future of horror, unquote. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that's sort of the beginning of anthology books. Um, and according to Eric Pippenberg, the horror anthology currently is in its third heyday according to amanda rice the editor for are you in the house alone a history of made for tv movies starting in 1959 the twilight zone rod serling's groundbreaking series kicked off the idea of anthology as social commentary and this she says um in the 80s uh, shows like the Ray Bradbury Theater and Tales from the Dark Side reflected like Reagan-era anxieties through old-fashioned monster stories. And more recently, we have shows like Black Mirror and the reboot of The Twilight Zone, uh, and they kind of reflect 21st century traumas. And uh, Rice says dealing with the heady issues under the guise of genre helps you ingest them better. The anthology never allows you to get comfortable with what you're watching, and people like that. And to end this, uh, Sarah Century says, quote, of course, the television series Tales from the Crypt, which was from 1989 to 1996, uh, and that's based on the old EC comics, has gone on to be one of the more iconic horror series in recent memory, featuring a rotating cast of actors and directors and the Crypt Keeper. Um, and it's sort of become a cultural milestone for horror fans everywhere, unquote. Yes. Oh. And yeah, and there's also Creep Show. Creep Show is another really popular anthology series, mm -hmm. and that one 
uh, is now on Shudder. I think like the original film is on Shudder too, but then there's now a new TV show that's also on Shudder. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anthology has always been a very horror type of subgenre. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it comes back to too also like weaving all of the tales together into like one really major twist or something like super tragic mm-hmm. because th- that's usually how life is, right? Like everything intersects and it's really really easily relatable to what's happening in real life. Yes, we are all connected whether it's by fear, by trauma, happiness, tradition mm-hmm. we're all connected in some way and anthology really shows that you're right yeah isn't it so weird too to think about like how people sometimes i would actually say more often than not are connected by trauma and tragedy like i feel like that happens more than with like happiness <laughs> I I know that sounds, like, real shitty to say and, like, very negative, but I think that people, I mean, it's a real thing. People create trauma bonds, and... Yes, we've talked about this, too, on the show. Yeah, I think that horror really um, kind of capitalizes on... Not capitalizes, that sounds like a a bad connotation, but, like, it's such a a human... um, like trait or reaction it's definitely a human experience to to bond over trauma yes and to bond over your fears and well i mean and trick-or-treat does that like all of these stories happen in the same town yeah they all deal with like the same thing like sam the spirit of halloween is in every is at the end basically of every story yes so he is a part of everything that happens to these people Yes. Yeah. So good. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about Rhonda, the best character in this film. Besides Hands down. Yes. (laughs) The trick-or-treat kids that are like the bullies and uh, also neurodivergence in horror. We'll talk about in this section and also in the next one, too. But um, yeah, take it away, Abby. Yeah. Okay, so I would really like to point out the brilliance of the kids' costumes for a minute. Rhonda is dressed as a cute little witch, and I think we, well, I know we've talked a lot about the history of witchcraft on the show before, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners already know that witches have been seen as kind of like fringe people throughout history until very recent times. Um... And also, okay, like before the patriarchy took over, but that's a discussion for a different day, maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> on for everyday discussion. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, on the opposite end here, we have Macy, ugh, who is the leader of the group of children, and she's dressed like an angel, but she's really a little shit. Like, <laughs> she is the worst she's like the mean girl that exists in every public school and it's just ugh. i think i was watching this with luke and he goes wow she looks like a lot of fun (laughs) (laughs) seriously but it's almost as if Rhonda is this very magical person and we see this like when schrader takes a liking to her even though it's like all fake but she is 
wickedly intelligent and she's kind and perceptive. Yeah, she's very different from Macy. She is the yes. exact opposite, and mm-hmm. which is reflects in their costumes. Um, yes. I, I want to add that Schrader is dressed as like a skeleton man, which <laughs> I find interesting because that could mean a few things. Um, it's ironic because he doesn't have a backbone. Because <laughs> he scares Rhonda even though he knows it's mean. Yeah. And he doesn't stand up to Macy until like the very end. But, you know, by then it's too late, my dude. Yeah. Um, skeletons are also used to describe something bad or embarrassing that happened in someone's past. So Schrader is not only a, like, like Schrader is not really a nice kid and he's also an embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there you go. Um, Chip, I think his name is Chip. Chip is yeah. a pirate and pirates have long been seen as rule breakers. Uh, they attack and they steal and Chip is very cowardly, but that doesn't stop him from attacking and stealing Rhonda's piece by scaring her. Ugh. And Sarah is an alien who, similar to a pirate, attacks Earth and abducts people for its own amusement or research. So, yeah, I would say these costumes are super fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, Down to the Bones blog makes a really great point about Rhonda, too. They say, you can make a case that Rhonda is the hero of this movie. The lesson here is to honor the past and not repeat past mistakes. These kids are hurting their classmate on the site where a bunch of kids died because of cruelty. Violence begets violence. Rhonda knows to honor the Halloween tradition and trusts that her knowledge will save her from known and unknown threats. You can get it, girl. Rhonda's sea of jack-o'-lanterns is lovely and really speaks to her character. Carving pumpkins is labor-intensive. I speak from personal experience that carving more than six in a single day is an ordeal. She really believes in honoring the dead. (laughs) I... I I hate to admit it, but the past few years, I've had Luke carve my pumpkin for me. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I don't want to do it. I will, like, scoop out the guts. I'll roast the seeds. But you know what? I just have a really hard time carving with a knife. I just do. It I scares just don't. me. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that is a valid reason. I just don't want to do it. No. I just look at it and I'm like, you do it. (laughs) (laughs) This is the face that I want. Make the face for me. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Oh my God. Oh, yes. (sighs) So, yeah. The reason why I liken Rhonda and her witch costume, along with her neurodivergence, to the actual history of witchcraft is because it is a powerful metaphor for those that society has deemed like, unnatural or too strange to fit into society. For so long, neurodivergent people, along with those who were thought to be witches, have been treated as less than, institutionalized in inhumane conditions, and in many cases, they were killed just for being atypical of what we think is neurotypical. Also, the fact that she is a girl really says a lot about her uniqueness, given that those on the autism spectrum are more commonly male. And Mm. this has a lot to do with how it is, like, diagnosed. But also, we don't see many characters that are a reflection of what it is to be female on the spectrum. Mm. So, 
She also stops the pattern of mistreatment by literally leaving the terrible prankster children to their death for treating like treating her like she's less than human. And she's seen as the butt of a cruel joke, much how much like how the children involved in the bus massacre were ditched by their parents for being like too much for them. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Yeah. She honors those that lost their lives, and she takes Halloween seriously, much like witches do. Mm -hmm. And I love the acknowledgement between her and Sam when they meet, because he's like, ah, yes, we are kin. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I love that very small interaction between Rhonda and Sam. It's so sweet. (laughs) All they do is. is look at each other, but it's just really sweet. And he leaves her alone. He's like, yeah. He goes, you got a pumpkin and it's lit. Good for you, girl. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, the best. Yeah. And I love how the bus kids save Rhonda. Mm-hmm. Uh, they destroy They destroy the bullies for her. And they know, because they do, they know what it's like. They literally died because of people not liking who they were. And like I said, we'll talk more about the bus children in the next topic. But right now I want to give this spot to a neurodivergent horror fan and essayist. And here's an article by Sarah Musnicki called What Horror Movies Taught Me About Autism. Musnicki says, quote, growing up, the only real place I could see representation of autism was in the horror genre. Like trying to find water in the Sahara, I was starved for something, anything to teach me about who I was. In terms of where we can go in terms of showcasing different variations of autistic representation in the horror genre, I have to hold up Rhonda from Trick or Treat as an example. While she's described as an ableist word in the film, she is arguably the most relatable representation out there in the horror genre. We see an autistic character who is not superpowered, though she is incredibly in tune with the traditions of Samhain and all things Halloween related. She does not need to be saved from the monsters that haunt the night. You can't help but feel with her as her arc takes us through a variety of emotional ups and downs, which isn't something you really see with an autistic character in horror. By the end of her arc, you can see a change in her. We see someone who was well-rounded and three-dimensional, and this is what we should push more when writing autistic characters, not just in the horror genre, but all genres as well, unquote. Yes, I love it. Yeah, and here's a snippet from Douglas Lamont's essay called On Horror and Autism. And uh, Lamont is autistic. And they write, quote, Horror has often been used to vividly convey the experiences of marginalized groups, chipping away at toxic stereotypes in the process. Night of the Living Dead, Nightbreed, A Quiet Place, Jennifer's Body, Get Out, the list goes on and on. Horror is full of movies that challenge norms about who gets stories told about them, while also delivering scares that keep you up in the thick of night. The experiences of the marginalized were barely subtext here and informed much of what was defined as scary in these pictures. The results were a mixture of entertainment and thought-provoking power that only horror can do so well. Let's also embrace the idea that autistic people can be adults too, dealing with problems of being a grown-up. 
that's true to life and also rich with possibilities of horror storytelling, unquote. Yes, I totally agree. And I am going to be really honest with you. I wish that, like, I think it's getting a lot better now, but... I want to see more of those stories represented because it's interesting and diverse and it makes the story so much richer than to just have the same characters over and over and over again. Uh, absolutely. For like, sure. It's it, You can only make so many movies with like neurotypical people or what we think is neurotypical because really there is everyone's brain is so different and it works on such a different level that it's like (laughs) there there isn't even a typical I don't think this is why I have a really hard time with um uh, milestones with children yes because every kid learns at their own pace And while I do think that it is important to have, like, a kind of, like, a general range Mm -hmm. of when maybe your brain is, like, learning things and doing things, I think that we put it in a box too often. Also, we demonize children and parents of children who are neurodivergent. Yes. Obviously, anti-vax is a terrible thing don't believe it it's hokey science a lot of people were like well you know my kid's gonna get autism if he's vaccinated you know oh my god like it's such a terrible thing how you know like you know what i mean it's like yes. like you're like people who are neurodivergent are demonized because of it um i think that by having things like that and that being so like pervasive in our culture, we have designed a world that does not agree with these like quote unquote neurodivergent people. Like we just keep perpetuating this idea that like you have to do certain things or you like have to react to certain social cues and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, who made these rules up anyway? (laughs) Like what the what the even heck? It's a very de- like very uh, complicated and it's very debatable. It's a de- debatable concept. Um, yeah. Also, part of the beauty of the horror genre mm-hmm. and having like um, characters that are seen as kind of like different or out there, like normalizes it and it kind of reminds me of how like Morticia Adams and the Adams family would just be like oh yeah no that's just like how they are and like they would not miss a beat like it it's not a big deal to them if you're like a little bit different or whatever because to them that's normal and I feel like that could really that really encompasses the entire horror community because that kind of stuff is just seen as so normal. Right. <laughs> and, and like I'm you, not... you find a place anywhere. Right. And I'm not saying don't listen to your child's doctor. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. We, we are not say. saying that. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to say that. But what I'm saying is like after becoming a parent, you really do start to think about these things. Yes. Because 
your doctor definitely knows the science around your body. Yes. But, and I know you are somebody who deals with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Only you know exactly what your body is going through. Yes. Yes. Your doctor can help you and guide you because they know the science, but you know your body. And they can't help you unless you tell them everything about what you're feeling. And I think that you're, as a parent, your child who maybe can't speak yet or doesn't know how to communicate really well yet, you are that conduit, basically. Mm-hmm. You're that you know, that thing that your child can speak through because you spend literally 24-7 with your child. Yes. And I think that it's important that pediatricians, doctors, and the people that they're seeing are very open and talk about everything. Yes. Agreed. Oh my <laughs> and, God. And that is how we will stop demonizing neurodivergent people. <laughs> yes, I agree. I do. All right. So now that we've wow, talked a lot about that, um, <laughs> uh, anyone who out there who identifies at, or has been diagnosed as neurodivergent, please let us know what you think of Rhonda, what you think of the representation of this film. Uh, we really want to know. Uh, so yeah, let us know on our social media. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anxiety surrounding children in trick-or-treat. So Trick or Treat, the movie, is a post 9-11 film released only about, well, it was released, it was made six years after 9-11. It was released eight years after. Mm -hmm. Um, But Gwen Hoffman of Horror Homeroom points out that many post 9-11 horror films revolved around evil or at least disturbed children. Children who were a threat to the main antagonists who just happened to be adults. Horror said, Hoffman says, quote, between the years of 2000 and 2009, horror films showed an increase of innately evil children in leading roles. In addition to their primary position as antagonists, these children were portrayed as surprisingly human. Why with so many national and tangible horror why, with so much national and tangible horror, was there a surge in horrible children? At, <laughs> at times when we should hold our loved ones near, why would the silver screen expose our fears and anxieties about children? As boots were hitting the ground in battle, we started seeing our children ref- reflected as monsters. Despite, her- despite horrific unemployment rates, and a growing recession, none of these seemed likely reasons for being afraid of the younger generation. What made children such a powerful menace in need of vanquishing? If we believe that horror is a social commentary reflecting our collective fears and anxieties, then what do these monstrous children tell us about society at this time? Unquote. And the answer is surprisingly simple. Children have become more expensive and harder to control thanks to the internet. (laughs) God damn it! (laughs) As Hoffman points out, quote, while the nation dips into excessive federal spending, raising gas prices, lower rates of health care, and a penance of minimum wage, children keep getting more expensive. Their education, their toys, their Girl Scout cookies, their health, and their general upkeep 
become a great strain on the American family. At the same time, the use of social media renders parents technologically obsolete and opens the uncontrolled floodgates of access to and from their children. The internet, advertising, and popular culture expose children to more adult themes and likewise pose very adult situations and choices. There is a definite transferal of power within the home. Vivian Sobchak argues that while children are at times called, quote unquote, possessed, in reality, they are in actuality in possession of the control within the household. There are, quote, uncivilized, hostile, and powerful others. She continues that while they fascinate the culture that uh, that also found them abhorrent, these children collapsed the boundaries that marked off identity from difference and exercised a powerful, deconstructive force dangerous to patriarchal, to patriarchal bourgeoisie culture, unquote. Hoffman goes on to say the constant everyday stress of the middle class squeeze is exacerbated by national events. Couples second guessing their decision to have children, whether they can afford to send them to a better school, are now inundated with images of lost security. After September 11th, 2001, our collective home was no longer safe, unquote. This is absolutely fascinating to me for a few reasons. So let's really think about who the villains or, I guess, heroes, antagonists, protagonists are of Trick or Treat. Uh, They are mostly children. They are children and they are women. Yep. Two groups that are normally silenced when violence happens to them. Mm. And they are the main characters. In this film, it's the children and the women who are the violent ones. And really, Wilkins, uh, who's the principal, and Krieg, who's the bus driver, they're really the only violent adult males in the film. And both of them get their comeuppance in the end by either children or women. (laughs) And that is how their stories end. So we'll talk more about women and the werewolves towards the end of this episode. So I'll stick to just this idea of quote unquote evil children. Um, but going back to what Hoffman was saying, after 9-11, children were not easy, not as easy to control, so to speak. Uh, this was a huge threat to adults everywhere, and trick-or-treat, to me, perfectly shows this, especially with the story surrounding Sam, who is the spirit of Halloween, and then the neurodivergent children who were killed in the school bus massacre. And I think it's safe to say that Halloween is very much a holiday, quote-unquote, for children, right? It's a Mm -hmm. costumed begging ritual. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, And I say, quote-unquote, it's for children, in quotes, uh, because there's a kid in all of us, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And Michael Doherty (laughs) says of Sam, quote, my hope with creating Sam was that he'd appeal to that inner child that I think we all have. He's the perfect balance of cute and creepy and scary and funny. You look at him and you can't tell if you should be running away or hugging him, unquote. (laughs) And don't we kind of feel that way about kids in general? We're scared of kids because they're a big responsibility. But at the same time, they're so dang cute. You just want to hold them and hug them. Yeah. (laughs) And that's Sam. And that is... Salmon trick or treat. 
Yes. So here we have cute little Sam, and he is the protector of Halloween, a children's holiday, and all of its ancient traditions. Traditions that children and children at heart understand and follow. But some adults, like the woman in the beginning of the film and the bus driver, they don't appreciate because they've lost that inner child in them. Mm -hmm. Sam is that reminder, much like a ghost reminding Ebenezer Scrooge about the meaning of Christmas. But by the end, but by the time Sam meets these people, it's too late. They're dead. (laughs) Yes. Or they're changed forever in not a great way. Yes. (laughs) Now, Quote unquote evil children didn't just show up in post 9 11 horror. They've been around for a long while. Uh, Abby, you have some information to add to this thought, I believe. Yes. I So um, I found a bunch of quotes by um, like horror icons and directors and actors and stuff like that. And I want to start off with a quote by Joe Dante. And he says, um, the creepy murderous child trope goes back to the bad seed from the most kid-centric decade, the 1950s. But lately, it's been having a resurgence with movies like Goodnight Mommy and The Boy, just to mention a few of the latest entries. Could it be connected to the fact that more and more parents have difficulty balancing work responsibilities, child rearing, and elder care, not to speak of nurturing their own relationships, personal career, and aspirations, and are squeezed financially by the costs of raising children and taking care of their own aging parents? And I'm going to pause this quote for just a second because we actually talked about this in... um, one of my family therapy classes, we are in a generation called the sandwich generation. Oh, tell me more. We are responsible for taking care of our own children and our aging parents because our parents literally cannot afford to take care of themselves. So right now, what we're seeing in America is that Especially with a lot of, um, I say, quote unquote, minority families, because white people are actually the minority. But in a lot of what we think of as typical minority families, they all live in the same household. Mm -hmm. So it puts a humongous burden on the sandwich generation, which is where we're at currently So that just kind of adds to the fear of raising kids because it's like you have so much other stuff to focus on. Right. And I feel like if you don't have kids, but you already are stuck with, I don't want to say stuck with, but you know, like you're already with your parents. Yes. You might have to give up that dream if you do have this dream of having children in order to take care of the people that are already there. Yes. And that's really sad. It is sad and it's scary. It's it's really scary to think that like your life will never be your own because you <laughs> you're constantly taking care of more than just yourself. It's right. It's absolutely crazy. There are many reasons why I'm one and done with my child whose name is Sam. <laughs> uh that's one of them because yes. I know that if I if I have more kids, 
my life will never be my own. It's already not my own because I have one child. Correct. It just keeps going after that. Yes. So, and I'm also older. I feel like if I was younger and I was having more kids, it'd be different. But I'm 33. Yeah. So I'm done. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me that, like, millennials especially, like, we already have it really rough, and now we got to take care of everyone else. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you're feeling that, like, <laughs> my my thoughts and prayers. <laughs> my thoughts and prayers. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Okay. So to continue this quote by Joe Dante, is it any wonder that children in genre movies are portrayed as powerful, disruptive, and uncontrollable? Mm-hmm. Perhaps these menacing Muppet movies reflect the fears inherent in helicopter parenting. Mm. That the minute you take your eyes off your child, something dreadful will happen. Or are they just aliens in Village of the like in Village of the Damned? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll never know. Right. <laughs> um D. Wallace, whom I just love to death. I love Dee Wallace. Um, yeah, she's pretty amazing. She's everyone's. I hate. I know she hates being moms in movies, but she's everyone's mom. She really is. Oh yeah. She says that children are innocents. So the more they stray from that, the more frightening it is for all of us. For an innocent energy to be taken over is the gravest of abominations the world can reap upon us. Adults are expected to be corrupt and evil. In a way. Um, and children are the last hope for good. Mm. Ooh, so if you think about it that way, it's like, well, I guess we're really fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, Barbara Crampton says, who doesn't think kids are scary? I have them. I know them well, and I'm frightened every day. <laughs> they, <laughs> they are consistently unruly and unpredictable. And... <laughs> I think that quote by Barbara Crampton is my favorite one because she's absolutely right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, my older son can be really creepy sometimes. And I I really do think it's just because of where he's at developmentally. Right. And, like, just the things that he thinks about and comes up with in his imagination. But I'm like, what the hell? Didn't he say something how he wanted to wear your face as slippers? Yes. So quick side story for all of you out there that you'll probably love. Um, he, My son came up into my bedroom um, because he was looking for his slippers. And he goes, he finds his slippers. They were like shoved under my bed or whatever. And he's like, oh, it's a good thing I found these slippers. Otherwise, I'd have to wear your face as slippers. <laughs> and he like runs downstairs and my husband had to explain to him like you know that like you saying that means that you would have to cut Abby's face off and wear them as your slippers right and he was like what and he like comes running back up the stairs he's like Abby I'm I I would never ever cut your face off and wear them as slippers you're my favorite and I was like Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Thank Thank you. you. Good to know. Thanks for clearing that up for me. (laughs) So, like, kids are creepy. (laughs) You know, and my son, uh, he's not at that age yet. But he is at an age where he looks, he's like a, 
feel like this stage of toddler toddlerdom <laughs> is um very much like animals, like pets, like dogs and cats. Yes. Um so he will stare into dark corners <gasps> or into closets no. and he will smile. No. I'm like, what you looking at? Who's in there? Who's playing peekaboo with you? Because I don't like it. Ew. I resulted to calling it fairies. I'm like, look, he's looking at the fairies because I need to make it sweet. Otherwise, I'm afraid of my own house. <laughs> oh, my God. Why? Yeah. So kids are all very scary. <laughs> well, they do say, though, um, if you all are interested in learning about the brain and what babies' brains are like, I highly recommend you read the book The Brain by David uh Eagleman, I think his name is. He talks about how when babies are babies, they have like the most neural connections they ever will have in their life. Yes, I remember you telling me this. So they're very like, um, they're very perceptive and they are super smart, but they don't have the ability to talk about it or Mm. like really like cognitively think about it so they're probably connected to (laughs) the spirit world like the veil is probably very very thin for them yes if you believe in that like the spirit world or the fairy world however you want to look at it like me (laughs) yeah however Uh, you have to look at it however you have to look at it yeah however you have to look at it to sleep through the night yeah, I totally can see that for sure. Oh my god. But it like getting back to what we were talking about, like it's pretty wild to me that in a lot of instances you can do everything right and the environment that you raise your kid in can be the best of the best. And they could still end up becoming serial killers. <laughs> like Right. Kind of like um like, Jeffrey Dahmer is one that comes to mind. Like, he didn't have a, a terrible childhood. And he just, I don't know, he was just, like, a bad egg. But obviously in this film, the parents and adults are pretty much downright evil. Oh. Oh, my God. A fire. Or a police car. Literally every day. I swear to God, it's all the old people that live here. Oh. <laughs> um, Like, the parents... And adults, they're all pretty much downright evil in this film. Like, the townspeople, the principal, the adults in positions of power sort of feel threatened by the children, and they decide to take drastic measures that literally result in murder. And their anxieties get the best of them. Right. Yes. Exactly. And of course, like with all horror, it's... It's fantasy, right? There's obviously like people who love horror don't condone children murdering adults. No. But in the in the fantastical world, yes, like these are children who are, you know, uh, yeah, like taking back maybe what was taken from them. I don't know. Like um, I want to go back to the neurodivergent children featured in the film who were um the kids on the bus. And I do want to add that they were actually played by neurodivergent people, which is actually pretty rad. That's awesome. Yes. So uh, the whole reason these children were murdered was because, like you said earlier, Abby, their parents couldn't stand them anymore and they thought they were too much. And isn't this just a 
fucking huge red flag. Like there's not only anxiety surrounding neurotypical kids in the film Trick or Treat, but neurodivergent kids as well. Like we mm-hmm. talked about earlier, like there's this demonization of neurodivergent children. And uh, in this film, they're able to fight back. Like they kill the adult that abused them, basically. And I think it would have been even more amazing if we saw them go after their parents too. But I suppose maybe that's where they were headed next since, you know, the night was still young in the film, even though the film was over. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. Let's get into our final thought. I uh, hope you love long ass le- episodes because, <laughs> <laughs> because you know what, Abby and I, it's been a few months. It's nice to just chat with you, Abby. Oh my I goodness. know. Seriously. Okay, so let's talk about gender bending the werewolves in Trick or Treat. Uh, Michael Doherty said, other than Ginger Snaps and the werewolf queen in The Howling, there weren't a lot of female werewolves on the big screen, which is where the idea of a pack of female lycanthropes came from. Why should guys get to have all the fun? Unquote. All right, get ready for a long ass quote, people. Okay. <laughs> oh, I really... saw this. Ex- I saw this exact same article. It's so good. Yes, it is. It's oh my god, everybody, like go and read it. Um, Anya Stanley, she's a great writer. She wrote this for Dread Central, but she says, um, in Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat, the she wolf trope enjoys a sort of gender-bent return to form, less a curse than an unshackled Bildungsroman. <laughs> that's a that's a wild word. I love it. Um, Bildungsroman. Yeah. One of the several vignettes, the She-Wolf segment, begins with Lori, a shy young woman in a little red riding hood costume who is strolling through town with her sister Danielle and a few friends. The girls all find dates to party with later in the evening, except for Lori. She wants her first time to be a momentous occasion with a proper suitor. Later on, a hooded, fanged sexual assailant attacks Lori, though she escapes. At a later bonfire, the hooded man falls out of a tree he was leering from and, once unmasked, turns out to be a sinister but non-vampiric character from earlier in the film. The principal. With narrative mascot Sam watching from a distance, Lori and the girls transform into werewolves and feast upon all men present. The transformation sequence is key here as it strikes a stark difference from those of, say, American Werewolf in London or even the Wolfman. In Trick or Treat, the metamorphosis from woman to she-wolf is painless. Femmes dressed in Halloween costumes writhe and moan by the light of the bonfire, fully in tune with their bodies. A flurry of sexually charged imagery flutters by. Painted nails dragging across skin, lipstick painted sighs revealing razor-sharp canine teeth, close-ups of gyrating flesh. Marilyn Manson which... Side note, ugh, Marilyn Manson. Um, but he croons a cover of Sweet Dreams Are Made of This, and Lori pounces onto her prey and rips apart his clothing. The most apt line of the song strikes a bullseye onto a Little Red Riding Hood Big Bad Wolf subversion. Some of them want to use you, some of them want to get used by you. 
Rather than being used by predatory wannabe Nosferatu, Lori comes into her own by stalking and snaring and consuming him, using him. The only discomfort on her part is in pre-ritual jitters, which writer-director Dougherty cleverly disguises as benign social anxiety at first. Lori is not a victim of a soul-crushing curse, nor is she pitted against other women in the alpha male power dynamics that so often dominates male werewolf stories. Rather, she's strong, empowered by her lycanthropy. The parallel between her feeling the parallel between her freeing transformation and her shame-free sexual awakening make for a powerful evolution in she-wolf cinema. Sure, a deeper read could still present Lori's story as reflective of cultural fears about women's sexuality. She's still a textbook example of the monstrous feminine, as coined by feminist theorist Barbara Creed, after all. Lori challenges the notion of woman as victim in horror the moment she discards her chaste little red riding hood costume and sinks her teeth into her victim's jugular. But by orienting the arc onto her coming of age and not how society treats her, save for the predatory man who gets his comeuppance, her agency and personhood takes center stage. As she rips her skin off to reveal her true, beastly self, Lori is no longer scared. She's in ecstasy, giving into her most primal urges. It may be monstrous to those watching, but Lori, Danielle, and the other women at the bonfire feel no shame, no guilt, and no coerced fear about consuming men, both sexually and physically. In this feast, they are all in unison. No one fights over who is the fairest one of all, who is the most alpha in the group. None of the power struggles that their male counterparts are narratively beholden to. Instead, the women travel in a pack and protect one another, but they notably don't act as guardians of their community as in Wolfen. It's far more reflective of how wolves behave in the wild. The International Wolf Center's website emphasizes a set of dominance rules which, if followed, largely prevents infighting and power struggles within the pack. They sleep, travel, and hunt as one. Of course, there are power dynamics between wolf packs and when a wolf becomes separated from its own pack, but within the context of this story of unleashed feminine power, it's fitting that Lori, Danielle, and the others are a tight-knit social group. Once lust is first satisfied, the she-wolf is an icon of feminine confidence. One need only get over the shyness about their first time. The projection of human anxiety that Skull alludes to is front and center in wolf lore and glaringly present in she-wolf horror. Ginger Snaps channels pubescent frustrations into a wolf story whose sexual elements are injected with steroids in Trick or Treat's Little Red Riding Hood segment. segment. <laughs> the women therein do not fight for positions of power as their male counterparts often do in werewolf lore. No alphas or betas to be found in these stories. Instead, reflective of wolves in nature, these women are instinctive social predators who travel in packs and protect each other as family. In choosing these wild ways, the women protagonists of these stories find an untamed power that still eludes many of us in real life. Perhaps we should take off our red capes, too.
Wow. Thank you, Anya Stanley, for that amazing article. It's so freaking good. Please check it out at Dread Central. Yes. I love even the hints to what is about to happen Mm -hmm. with these werewolf women. It's so kind of funny. You know, like, oh, she's the runt of the litter and stuff like the things that they say about each other. Yes. And it's uh, it's very clever. It's a lot of fun. And my favorite part of that observation by Stanley is that the werewolf women do are not in pain when they transform. Yes. Like it's a natural part of their being. Yes. And I know we've talked we talked about this in our Ginger Snaps episode, but it makes more sense for people with wombs, people with who menstruate, um, to be werewolves. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, so it would make sense that the female presenting characters in this film are werewolves. Yes. So also the thing about it is, like, that whole concept that, like, you're supposed to be in pain if you have a period and, like, mm. that's normal. That is not normal. It's only normal because <laughs> because white men were in charge of women's medicine for so long. Mm. <laughs> like, if you're experiencing that, that is not, like, typical and, like, you should seek answers and you should seek treatment. And I think that it's really beautiful in this whole sequence that like something so powerful is not seen as um, like very painful. It's just natural. It's just the way that it's supposed to be. Yep. It's natural to them and yeah, their life. Yes. I think it's great. (laughs) It is. It's so good. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Abby, I'm so happy to have you back. That's my sugar cube. Yay! For sure. I'm so happy to be back. And I'm so... Man, everything in life is just going really well so far. It's been tough. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Postpartum is really, really, really difficult. And I think that needs to be normalized more. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that it fucking sucks. Postpartum sucks. Yeah. Um, But everything else is really great. Even on the days when I'm feeling like, oh, God, fuck postpartum and everything that goes with it. Um, I told I I mean, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. And I, I and I mean, I'm only 20 months into this thing, but it's like I, th- I think it goes away. <laughs> It's mo- I mean, it's almost like grief where it doesn't quite go away. You just learn how to deal with it. Yes. You just learn how to how to how to manage it, I suppose. Yes. Um well that's exactly so, what it is. It it is part of uh I think grieving is a big part of childbirth. Yes. Because so much changes for you. So Yes. Not only your body, but your 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 situation, like your external situation changes oh, for sure. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's all so, so, so different. Um, yes. But it's all good. It's it's good. It really is. That's the thing, too. Not everyone can, can do it, and I totally understand. It's mm-hmm. not easy. No. And so <laughs> if you decide that that is not for you, good on you, because 
that's good. You should know what you want in your life. Yes. But it's amazing how if you do want this, how you are able to handle the bad that comes with it. Yes. You're able to survive it and Mm -hmm. it's doable. So. Yep. Yeah. It's scary, but it's very doable. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, so I guess a little bit of an announcement and I'm going to remind everybody on social media uh, but for a variety of reasons, um, whether it be time and uh, like scheduling and stuff, Abby and I, for now, are going to be doing our episodes once a month rather than twice a month. Yes. Now, if we find something that we really want to discuss, and we'll probably do a coffee break. Remember those? Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll probably do a quick coffee break episode at some point. Um but, you know, we are both moms. Uh, we have families. Uh, we have jobs. We have school. We have spouses that are also in school. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of time management. <laughs> and yes. Abby and I, our time man- our times don't always match up because of this. So just to be safe and to make sure that y'all get quality content because that is more important to us than just spitting out rando episodes. Yes. Um, we want to give you quality content. And so the way we're going to be doing that is by giving you a good old hearty episode once a month. Yeah. Like this one, which is almost an hour and a half long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it makes up for it. Yes. Um, so we are going to be doing one episode a month towards the end of the month. Uh, so, yeah. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and you know, if you like what we do and you really want to support the show and you want us to maybe in the very, very, very near future, do more than one episode a month, you got to join our Patreon. Uh, Abby and I work really hard on this show with literally no help from anyone else. It's all of us. We're doing the researching, the editing. Uh, so let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash good morning, Nancy. And you know, if Patreon isn't your deal and I totally understand, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and so much more. So go to the link in our show notes. Uh, It's a spread shirt link, and that will take you to our shop. Go get some merch. (laughs) Yes. Um, We also know that times are really tough right now. So a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. And don't forget, Black lives still matter. Trans lives still matter. So check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. <laughs>